In every act of my administration I have sought the happiness of my fellow citizens. My system for the attainment of this object has uniformly been to overlook all personal, local, and partial considerations, to contemplate the United States as one great whole, to confide that sudden impressions, when erroneous, would yield to candid reflection, and to consult only the substantial and permanent interests of our country. The words of President George Washington, and this is The Guardians of the Republic. Hello, I'm Patrick Murray from the Monmouth University Poll, and my co-host is Ian Kahn from the TV series Turn, Washington Spies. On this episode of the podcast, we look at the challenges facing the Republic. We'll cover the issues of the week in our hot take segment and wrap with our Guardian of the Week segment. Please make sure to subscribe and give us a rating in your favorite podcast app. But first, on the polling front, Patrick, this week you asked a question comparing George Washington to both Donald Trump and Barack Obama. What prompted you to do that? Well, there was a poll in The Economist uh, done by YouGov, uh, which we talked about in last week's uh, segment, and it compared uh, Donald Trump to uh, Abraham Lincoln, who was the better Republican president, and Donald Trump edged out Lincoln in that poll among Republicans. And there was a question about what does this question really mean, and would Democrats answer this differently? So I decided to just take a stab at it and see what this meant by comparing Trump and Obama to Washington. Who was the better president? And overall, it's our first president against Trump. It's 71% who say Washington was the better president. 15% say it was Trump against Obama. 58% say it's Washington. A little higher number, 33% say it was Obama. But when we dig down into the partisan opinion among Republicans, uh, Washington narrowly edges out Trump as the better president in their perceptions by 44% to 37%. But among Democrats, it's a different story. Yes. Right? It's 63% who actually say Obama to 29% who say Washington was the better president. So the whole thing that we saw last week coming out of that YouGov poll about, hey, Republicans uh, don't think historically or whatever whatever their, their critique was, we're seeing some evidence in this question that maybe more Democrats than Republicans do this, uh, depending on what the answer is. I don't know what you think of that, that question. It was a weird question. Uh- uh, yeah, it's an interesting question, um, and it's really cool. One of the it's a it's a news making question that we have from Monmouth University, and we got the guy from Monmouth University right here. It's fun, um, you know. It was when I first saw this, I thought to myself, "Hmm, how is that different, and why does that not surprise me as much as the Trump versus Lincoln surprised me?" Uh, part of it was because for people of color. Um, African Americans, the the numbers were fourteen percent for General Washington, for President Washington, I should really say, and eighty percent for Obama. And among white Democrats, it was thirty two percent for Washington and fifty eight for Obama. We were so sort of shocked by Lincoln Trump this past week that it, we, we should have some surprise certainly at Washington. However, there is a slightly different context here amongst African American voters. The first thing I thought of was, well, George Washington was a slave owner. Yeah. Um, President Obama is the first African-American president. Uh, It does not surprise me at all that the numbers are that way amongst African-Americans. 
if you just look at what you know, we, we have in the past discussed General Washington and his uh, growth, certainly when it came to slavery. But at the end of the day, he was a found a slave owning founding father. That is part of his story. Celebrating George Washington is very different depending on who you're talking to. Right. Uh, so those numbers don't surprise me that much uh, among white Democrats still. Um, there are a number of people who would have that angle on it as well. Yeah. But if we're going to make such note of Trump and Lincoln, we should equally make note of Obama versus Washington. So I'm glad we have these numbers. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just it's not just about race. There is still some partisanship in there and some thoughts, I think, historically. But it's also, you know, we, we I asked this question. I don't know what it means. I didn't know what the YouGov poll meant, uh, but it. It suggests, I heard from some historians that, you know, it suggests that we don't understand history all that well as, as well. But there, there was one other poll number that I just wanted to point out to you that we had in our Monmouth University poll uh, this week. And it's on the impeachment front. And not much has changed overall uh, in terms of people who feel that Donald Trump should be impeached or should be reelected or that he's doing a good job. We saw the numbers jump on impeachment after the Ukraine news broke. And then it hasn't moved since then. And those people who have moved on in the impeachment were not people who liked Donald Trump or thought it was okay. It was people who disliked Donald Trump, thought he should be kicked out of office in 2020, but didn't think that he should be impeached right now for a variety of reasons. That's that 5% number that's shifted. It was people who didn't like Donald Trump who shifted from saying, let's wait on impeachment to, uh, you know, we have to impeach based on this new evidence. But the, the other number that I saw in there is that, just 24% of the American public believe that their fellow Americans are open to reevaluating Trump if new information came in. 71% say, you know, it doesn't matter what else we know here. They don't believe that the, the American public would change their mind. Yeah, I think that number is really high, 24%. Uh, I, I'm surprised that it's that high. I think it, it, it would be even lower. Um, because it feels like yeah, I think in reality it is lower. I, I think this, I, yeah, I think it really is lower. I think that's 8%. just. I think there's there's an optimism bias there that twenty four percent think that um, that uh, the public opinion could be changed, but seventy one percent I think realize the reality, which we're seeing in every poll, which is public opinion won't change. Evidence doesn't matter. We're locked in. So you're talking optimism bias. I just want to go back to the Obama and talk about recency bias just real quickly. Uh, you know, when it comes to value to the country, Obama, I, I thought, had a lot of pot, very positive qualities um, from my perspective. But the value that George Washington brought to the country is undeniable um, in terms of sort of bringing the country together in its most challenged time or one of its most challenged times. Uh, so I just wanted to, when when you were talking about the historians who say mm -hmm. that people don't understand history, I think if people had a better understanding of the sweep of what George Washington did, um, with, again, the caveat that there are problems. He was an, Im an imperfect man of greatness. Without question, he owned other human beings throughout his whole lifetime, even though he did make a shift. Right. But if you really look at it and you understand that sweep of history, it's hard to argue um, that Obama was a more uh, important president or a better president, um, c considering all the work that happened at the Constitutional Convention when he wasn't already president, but that should count towards what it was that Washington did right. in establishing this republic. Well, let's take that quote that you read at the beginning of the show. Yes, which um, you found this week. Right, and I pulled it out because I was looking for quotes that happened around the summer of 1795, and the reason why I picked that time period was that that was when 
uh, Washington had sent over John Jay in the kind of many people considered it a secret peace deal that he was trying to work out with Britain. Mm-hmm. And when people found out about it, particularly in the, uh, members of the House of Representatives found out about it, there was a huge upcry that he had abused his power and perhaps Washington should be impeached. And one of the things that you've got to remember is that whatever he did, and, and I guess we're going back to Devin Nunes here, who, who has brought right. that up, as saying Donald Trump didn't do anything different than, than George Washington did. Read, you know, go back and read that letter to, this was sent to uh, the members of Boston City Council, that letter. In every act of my administration, I have sought the happiness of my fellow citizens. Uh, I only consult the substantial and permanent interests of our country. So whatever he was doing, it was in the interest of his country. He didn't say, I'm doing this to preserve, you know, to, to my, you know, power. Go, my power. And that's, I think, different from where we are today. It's different from uh, you know the, the challenges that our republic faced this week are much different than they did back in the summer of 1795, which leads us to this. To this. Now, before we get to the actual charges, we should focus on the justification for the need to impeach now. And this is what the House resolution says. President Trump, by such conduct, has demonstrated that he will remain a threat to national security in the Constitution, if allowed to remain in office, has and has acted in a manner grossly incompatible with self-governance and the rule of law. That's heavy-duty stuff. Do you have any thought on that before we get to the next thing? Right. And this is, listen to this justification. So every impeachment has a justification around it. The articles have a justification. He has demonstrated that he will remain a threat to the national security and the Constitution. Now, let me read what it said about Bill Clinton. This was the justification in his articles. William Jefferson Clinton has undermined the integrity of his office, has brought disrepute on the presidency, has betrayed his trust as president, and has acted in a matter subversive of the rule of law and justice to manifest injury of the people of the United States. It's different. That's significantly different than saying he is a threat to the country. It's and just the, that he's a bad example. Security. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's a, it's, I mean, the, the, the justification is he's a bad he's a bad example and president should be a, shouldn't be a bad example. And he just, lied. Yeah. He also Clinton lied. Yeah. He lied. Well, that was oath. that was the article of, of impeachment right. that that got passed to perjury. He perjured himself. He lied. President should not commit crimes while they're president. That was the justification. In this case, the justification isn't about that. He's a bad example because of that, because he lied about an affair in, in, a, in a hearing. In, in a deposition, this is Donald Trump has demonstrated that he will remain a threat to national security and the Constitution if he is allowed to remain in office. That so now I'm going to read. Deal. I'm going to read the specific articles. Using the power of his high office, President Trump solicited the interference of a foreign government, Ukraine, in the 2020 United States presidential election. Okay, that's that's number one. Number two. President Trump thus interposed the powers of the presidency against the lawful subpoenas of the House of Representatives and assumed to himself functions and judgments necessary to the exercise of the sole power of impeachment vested by the Constitution in the House of Representatives. So basically saying that he obstructed the... They, they've simplified it, right? So this is what he did, and then he blocked us from being able to investigate what he did. So those are the two articles of impeachment. Now, we've just boiled them down there to to the key um, 
point that they're trying to make. There are facts in each of those articles that, are, that support these. But this is the basic thing. So the first article is he abused uh, abuse of power. Mm-hmm. All right. So he used the powers of his high office. And I want to get to that term high office because it, it, these all, all these things mean something specific. And this is what the Republicans are arguing against, that they mean something different. The second one is either, you know, obstruction of, of Congress or contempt of Congress, however you want to phrase that. Uh, but he's denied these subpoenas and be, and Congress or the House specifically has sole power of impeachment. So let's break those down a little bit. Um, you know, so folks understand a little bit more uh, about you know, how, how this comes about, about. So one of the th- things that we see here is the use of his powers of high office. Now, the Republicans were arguing that Donald Trump did not commit a high crime, a misdemeanor, because the crime wasn't serious enough. What the constitutional argument of the experts that the Democrats brought in is, High doesn't refer to the crime. High refers to a crime that you commit while in high office. It's the office that creates the, the seriousness of the, of the crime, which is basically going off of what we're, uh, the, the whole Bill Clinton thing. And, you know, in normal circumstances, lying about an affair while you were under investigation uh, or giving a disposition in an investigation about a real estate deal is not considered a high crime. But because he was president when he did it, that is a high crime because it was the, he was doing it while he was in high office. So they're trying to use this. The Democrats are trying to use this idea. High crime refers to doing anything that undermines the sanctity of the presidency or the Constitution while you are in high office. Do you think that holds water? Uh, I, yeah, I think um, constitutionally it does. But I think you can still argue with that. But, I, I, you know, this is the, clearly the justification that they're trying to give uh, in that one. There's a couple of points, if we stick with that first one, that I think are really interesting. Um, and that is that, uh, you know, there are a couple of amendments that were suggested by the Republicans that were all shot down. And I should point out that we are recording this just as the Judiciary Committee is about to vote. So our expectation is that the vote is going to be, be on party lines. If if something bizarre happens, we might have to come back and re-record <laughs> this bit. <laughs> That'd be something. Our expectation. They get is, Ted Lou. Right. They get Ted Lou out of the hospital. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Come back and vote, pal. But every every vote on the amendments on uh, on Thursday night were along uh, party lines. So one. So most of the amendments were like, let's just get rid of these articles. So that justification that we read at the top. Uh, about, uh, you know, he will continue to do these things. You know, there was an amendment to try to get rid of that section. Uh, but the, the strangest amendment that I found was the one uh, offered by Matt Gates, which was to change the reference to asking for an investigation into Joe Biden to asking for an investigation into Hunter Biden because mm-hmm. they feel that that's justified. Yeah, that was, and Matt Gates. Matt Gates is an interesting character, no doubt, and he will go down in the history books as the person who who led the storming of the skiff, um, and then yesterday had his pot calling the kettle black moment, as yeah. Representative Johnson called it when he called out Hunter Biden for uh, driving while intoxicated, which Matt Gates was not convicted but was arrested for doing the very same thing. Um, yeah, it would change the equation because if you're investigating Hunter Biden, you're investigating corruption. If you're investigating Joe Biden, then you're trying to help shift an election. Um, unfortunately, in the transcript that President Trump released, it was very didn't say this Hunter Biden business. He said this Joe Biden business. 
Yeah. What do you think of the, the, the fact that they just decided to stick with two articles? So, for example, they didn't go. You know, one of the things that they're talking about was bribery, was, mm-hmm. was trying to use this quid pro quo um, as a, a, a charge of bribery, which is specifically mentioned in the Constitution. Like he was soliciting a bribe by soliciting this investigation in exchange for uh, a meeting in the White House and uh, the aid being released. So they, they decided not to go there. They did not go into the Mueller report. They did not go into the Russian stuff, although there are references in the Articles of Impeachment yep. to the Mueller report. For example, uh, they, uh, in the Articles, it says these actions were consistent with President Trump's previous invitations of foreign interference in United States elections and previous efforts to undermine the government's investigations into foreign interference. What do you think about the fact that they just you know, went to these two articles? You know, it's it's... It really is a tactical question at a certain point. Um, they, they had to get on record that this is completely inappropriate. I, I, in past episodes, I've expressed that because, I, what, especially after what we saw with Mitch McConnell last night on Sean Hannity, where he basically said, I'm in lockstep with the White House counsel. Everything's going to go together, you know, where it's basically there's no way he's going to be removed from office that the the best tactic would be to sort of stretch it out and continue to show the different places where there may be corruption, right? Um, By simplifying in this way, it's going to simplify the process. However, if the Senate trial goes forward, and and one thing we haven't talked about yet is how the Senate, the senators will vote and whether, you know, the 5347, if they stay party line, McConnell can do it any way he wants. But with Gardner and Collins and, um, you know, Romney, that could shift. In which case, all of these questions can come up in the trial. And they can be referenced and mentioned. So it's concerning. It's a tactical question. And you know what? Pelosi has handled this, I think, largely well. Um, So it's not how I would have done it necessarily. But I also understand the point of view to give the the Congress people in those purple districts a better chance to get this done and finished in enough time to sort of change the story for the November elections. What do you think about it? Yeah, I... You're right, because it was a tactical decision that was made. My question is, is the tactical decision the right decision for the health and well-being of the republic in the long term? And I'm still not sure that it is. I'm still not sure that trying to wrap this up so that, uh, you know, the these members of Congress who are in these swing districts that, that won, that shift, you know, that won those uh those red districts in 2018, they can go back to their constituents and say, you see, I could uh, walk and, and chew gum at the same time. Yep. You know, we got the impeachment done, and now we're voting on all these other big bills that are important to you. Um, and that's great for 2018. But my question is... For 2020, you mean? Uh, yeah, yeah, 2020. My question is, though, what's, what is this going to give... McCon- this is exactly the question you're asking. What kind of leeway is this going to give McConnell in the Senate trial, because he gets to kind of determine some of the rules of how that Senate trial but again, is going to play out. Not necessarily. Not if the Republican senators don't go along with him. Not if Murkowski doesn't go along with him. Collins, Gardner, Romney, that's it. All of a sudden, yeah. the Democrats then get to decide how things move forward in the trial. So it does shift things. Right. But I think if you if you drew this out a little longer, and, and I, I understand one of the arguments that Democrats made uh, is that we can't, you know, we can't draw this out longer. We can't wait for the tax returns, which is the thing that I say I think is right. going to be even more telling than than this. 
is that we can't because we just got a, a ruling after eight months on one of the subpoenas that we sent yeah. for information. How much longer can we wait? They, and their, their argument, and it's a, I think it's a strong one based on you know, what, what's in the articles, is the, the country can't afford to wait. Uh, That's true. On this That's because true. he could do further things. 20, the 2020 election is coming up. And we need to put a marker down that says, look, he's being complicit, allowing the Russians and, in fact, inviting the Russians. Encouraging it. And in, in, to come in and interfere in our election in 2020. So this just can't we, we can't drag this out. That was uh, so Schiff's I, I, argument. I get that. I get that. Now, I that think was that, Schiff's argument. Yeah. And he, you know, I like Adam Schiff. I think I like how Adam Schiff went about that is what I want to say. Um, and I, I like that was his point. He said, look, we got to get this done. We got to get this on the record. So I, I, I have mixed feelings about it overall. Yeah. Uh, there's a piece of me that thinks that you really could really draw it out. But, you know, uh, they're, they're moving forward as is. And John Roberts is going to play a really big role. And if he takes if, if he takes a real uh, decides to be the judge and be an honest broker there, I think that could change the equation all the way around. Yeah. Although, I mean, there's not a lot. I mean, he can rule, he can rule on certain things, but it's not like a normal trial where the rules are already set up by the system. The, the Senate gets to set up what the rules again, are going to be. But the, the Senate may not be the Senate the way that it is yeah. because there are political well, let's, considerations uh, Before we attached. talk about because I want to talk a little bit more about that. But before we do that, let's. I want to focus on the second charge, uh, the second article of impeachment, which is this uh, obstruction of Congress. And this was the one where, in particular, Jonathan Turley, the, the lawyer, the legal scholar that uh, the Republicans brought in, was saying that was problematic because the House of Representatives are saying he, just, he did not comply with these subpoenas, therefore he's obstructing us. And Turley was saying, well, that makes you judge and jury of the subpoenas. And at least, you know, even in the, in the Lincoln, uh, Lincoln, even in the Nixon uh, impeachment, is the House waited until the Supreme Court ruled on the subpoenas. And therefore, they had that backing of the Supreme Court saying, yeah, you have to turn this stuff over to Congress. Mm-hmm. And, it's true. And Turley's argument was, you're determining that they, that they have to turn it over to you rather than allowing the court to determine it and then saying that's impeachable because he didn't do what the court said he should do. Uh, what do you think of that charge there? You know, Turley, and we're going to talk about him later, um, Turley, that was his best point to me when he said, you can do this, you just can't do it this way. Um, and I, I understand that. I really do. I, I understand that, that perspective. There's a big part of me that thinks there's plenty to discuss. It's not like, you know, we, 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 you can pull in the Stormy Daniels situation. You can bring Michael Cohen out of jail and you can sit down and ask Michael Cohen about all this stuff. There's lots of things to keep the time busy, um, while you're waiting for the courts to make their decisions. Yeah. Um, but that'll be, you know, th- this has been a really tough period in American history and it's going to continue being tough so there is you know there's there's ways there you know you got to wait you got to wait right and and democrats are making the argument that that the what the way trump did it and defying these subpoenas was unprecedented in fact they wrote that into the articles is that in the history of the republic this is i'm quoting from the articles again in the history of the republic no president has ever ordered the complete defiance of an impeachment inquiry uh and so that is what they're they're trying to say is that he, and, and he didn't allow that. Any, or, or sought to obstruct and impede so comprehensively the ability of the House of Representatives to investigate high crimes and misdemeanors. There is great truth to that, right? I mean, right. And that's the White House Council 
Yeah. They're saying we don't need the court to tell us because the Constitution invests in us the sole power of impeachment. And that means the sole power to um, ask for things and determine if we didn't get them, then that was that's an impeachable offense. And there is uh, actually an argument uh, about that, that that's what the sole power of impeachment means. There's, there is a, a, a scholarly argument that is exactly what that means. And there are some court findings that says... You know, the, 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 in fact, there was a court finding, I don't remember the case, but ruled that the House couldn't ask for certain information or, di- or couldn't demand certain information or hold the president accountable because they didn't, weren't doing it in the context of an impeachment. Uh, and if it was an impeachment, I don't remember the case again, but there were, the court ruling said if it was an impeachment, then they could have done it. That's right. right. I mean, that was the argument back back when we were talking about impeachment in the summer was all of these issues with Russia, with the uh, with the Mueller investigation. If it was under the impeachment, they would have to comply. Well, now we are in an impeachment yeah. inquiry. They are not complying. So it's a, it, this is a true constitutional uh, crisis that we're that we're dealing with. OK, well, we started to talk about what we think the next step is after these articles are passed by the House. We still haven't gotten all the way there, but we expect that that's going to happen sometime next week. But then it goes to the Senate. And we were just talking about McConnell gets to set up certain rules there, and he might be held back if he doesn't have support of his entire uh, caucus there. As you said, you know, who are we naming here? Romney, Collins, Murkowski, who else? And Gardner. And Gardner. Yeah, Gardner, who who, was doing this. Gardner is doing this, Gardner and Collins in particular, out of uh, a political Personal, necessity because yes. they're up for election in, in, uh, in 2020 in states that uh, where Donald Trump is not looked upon uh, too favorably. Uh, so but that's four out of the 53. And that's enough. Yeah, that's enough to change to, to change how the rules are made. So that's going to be a key moment. Um, I've been disappointed. Ben Sass this week and uh, when uh, when. Lindsey Graham brought together the judiciary to talk about the IG report, and Ben Sass came very strongly for President Trump. It seemed to me uh, that uh, was yeah. very disappointing. Oh boy, I'm so surprised. Well, I'm, surprised. I'm, I, yeah, I'm, I'm. You're more hopeful about these guys when they show a little bit of uh, a spark of constitutional vigor. Um, I, yeah. I'm, I'm a little. I'm much more cynical <laughs> when well, that happens. I I, I understand. Uh, so the the next couple of weeks after we get through this, one last thing I want to talk about with Nadler. So last night, yeah. um, you texted me and said Nadler just shut it down. Um, and at first I was like, oh, that was bad. Why did he do that? And I'm watching it, and you know the Republicans are losing their minds. Well, you know what? At the end of the day, that was smart. It was because smart. it was really smart because otherwise they were going to take that vote. It was going to finish voting around midnight or one o'clock in the morning, which then would say literally you are impeaching the president during the middle of the night. You're trying to sneak an impeachment in there in the middle of the night. And exactly. Nadler was like, yeah, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. And watching Collins have a conniption in the conference room and then come out into uh, it, it was it was it was an amazing moment. Really it, was. Yeah, it was um, looking at that. That was probably the hottest moment uh, for Republicans in that whole hearing on Thursday was was not the actual articles of impeachment was recessing a process yeah. <laughs> it was recessing it well and part of it is because they all had some of them had travel plans to go get back home on friday morning but what you're right i mean it was like this is not going to be a middle of the night vote was- and also it was it was the reason why they got to the middle of the night 
as I mentioned before, there are, there are these five amendments. One of them... Really, Which they said yeah. were going to be done by 5 p.m., right. and they weren't. Really ridiculous. The Republicans were dragging this out so, specifically so that it would to be in the it. middle of the night. And, yes. and Nadler said, I got you. <laughs> well, this was, well uh, this was what was, was fascinating, right? So they came with a full-throated, screaming defense at that point because it was the one spot where they actually had a point, which was, this isn't right. Whereas for the rest of the day, it was sort of a lot of hemming and hawing, and this he didn't really do anything wrong because their tactic wasn't, you know, their tactic wasn't, yeah, it wasn't so bad. Their tactic was what he did. He didn't do anything wrong. There's nothing wrong in what he did. So you can't really get behind that argument. So then to have a moment at eleven o'clock at night to go, you know what, this is this is terrible. They were actually able to release a lot of that energy. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? That's why it got so loud and so intense. So, so what what is the prognosis, Patrick? What, where how is the patient this week? Um, I think the patient is uh, still in critical and potentially getting worse. Uh, I'm not very positive about the long term implications of this. I mean, the the Senate could turn out differently. We have heard some rumblings that not only will McConnell shoot, uh, you know, vote to shoot down those two articles, but McConnell will also put forward a resolution to actually acquit the president of any wrongdoing. Don't know whether that's going to happen now, but I mean, this is the talk. This is where we are right now. Well, either way, there's an asterisk next next to, will be an asterisk next to President Trump's name for the rest of his life, that he is only the third president to be impeached. Um, And that, that will stay. You know, that will that will stay. My prognosis is is last week I was so down, uh, partially because I thought, I don't think Nadler can cut it. <laughs> I think he's going to struggle. I thought Nadler was strong this week. I thought he handled himself well. Um, and that that's simply process in the House. But there's a hope now. There's a hope. Um, William uh, Weld, Bill Weld, uh, who's running for president in the, on the Republican side, did an interview yesterday saying that he has spoken to friends of his in the, in the Republican side, and he says there are four to six Republican senators who are going to, who are strongly considering voting to convict. That would be a, a big deal. And actually, the fact that the House stayed even, you know, on, on this party line vote, if there's any shift on the Republican side, it's going to make a difference. So I, I, I wouldn't say that I'm hopeful. I think the patient is incredibly critical, um, but I'm a little bit more optimistic this week. Just a little bit. Yeah, we'll see. All right. All right. Okay, so let's move on to our hot take segment. This is where we have 90 seconds to discuss different items in the news. And when you hear the sound, it's time to move on to the next topic. So first up, a big, huge news event yesterday. Patrick, the UK election results happened. What do you think? Conservative landslide. The Tories yes. just wiped out. And in fact, it's a conservative landslide because the Labour Party collapsed. The conservatives' share of the electorate is was about the same as it was in the 2015 election. It was Labour that collapsed. And I think what we're seeing there is, you know, people just want a government to, to move forward, to do something. But Jeremy Corbyn, the labor leader, is so unpopular. He has like something like a, a 20, a 30% to... 44. Yeah. 44% 
underwater. Yeah, it's like 25% favorable, 70% unfavorable or something like that. Yeah. It's just like incredible numbers that you just don't see anywhere. You know, he's like, I mean, for, for people who don't follow UK politics, who don't know who these, these characters are, uh, Jeremy Corbyn is like, if you take Bernie Sanders and remove any and all redeeming qualities from him, you got Jeremy Corbyn. And the fact that the Labor Party is stuck with him all along and he's been able to keep the Labor Party all along just says how bad the Labor Party is right now. But the Liberal yeah. Democrats also, they had a problem. You know, they had been in a coalition government with uh, the conservatives back in 2010, uh, 2015. David Cameron wins. He's the conservative leader. He wins this big majority. And that's what leads to Brexit and everything else falls apart. So there isn't a really good opposition there. Yeah, it's it, it was an absolute disaster um, and was real shocking. And it brings us to the next question. Yeah, so what do you think this means for our own election here in the U.S.? Well, I, if this does not give you some sense that President Trump can be a, um, unbeatable with the wrong opponent, I, I, I don't think we're paying attention. I know that it's different. It's not quite the same. It's England. It's America. It's a different world. But here we have a far left. I mean, Corbyn is as far left as you get. I mean, he's he's not apologizing for socialism. He's calling it out completely. And it it was a deep concern. I mean, if it was like a slight victory, you could say, well, you never know, blah, blah, blah. But this was overwhelming, an overwhelming rejection. And the, the fact that we have this really challenging time to have someone who's going to come in and throw things into disarray even more um, is scary to people. And I'm, I, I think that it suggests... It gave. It was a good night for Joe Biden last night, or Pete Buttigieg, or Amy Klobuchar. That's if if, if people are paying attention, I'm not sure. Um, because well, I think the donors I, are paying attention. Yeah, the donors, but the donors don't determine the outcome, and that's no, that's, not. that's the, the, the it's the activists who determine the outcome. That's the way our process is. You know, the activists in Iowa, the Which activists in, in in New Hampshire, um, and they don't pay attention to these things. So they're going to kind of write this off. I think what we're no. seeing, what I what I think is, we we're seeing a worldwide movement that basically says that we don't we don't trust government to work correctly so we're okay with a, a wacky populist who doesn't respect the rule of law um and and what you have is the other parties putting up somebody who can't counter that that's what the problem that's, is you just put that perfectly yes. that was dead on right well right. done all right so one thing that came out of the the uk election too that was an issue for uh labor was uh, charges of anti-semitism and we're seeing this over here anti-semitism is on the rise there was just that shooting in jersey city um and then there was this executive order issued by donald trump to supposedly to combat anti-semitism what did you think of that well, that's the that's the issue, isn't it? Um, I was with my uncle Stan this week, and I, I come from a Jewish background where um, a large, I would say, eighty-five to ninety percent of my family with my uncle Stan was killed in the Holocaust, and we were going through old photo albums of pictures of of that family. And you know, all of a sudden, President Trump is passing this executive order calling Judaism a nationality, with the idea, I think, if we can trust what Jared Kushner says, that it would help. Uh, on college campuses that you can't be uh, anti-Semitic and against yeah. Israel, right? Right, so it's, however, it's to stop any boycott Israel movements. Yep. However, what it also does as a Jewish person is it sort of puts you on notice that you could, if, if this goes through and it's passed, and it is, that, that basically you're Jewish first and not an American. And for my whole life as a Jewish man, I have been an American who is Jewish. 
And now I'm a Jewish person who lives in America. And that was been one of the, the creeping charges in all this anti-Semitism that's coming up from the, from, from the left, is this idea that, that, that Jewish Americans have this dual uh, loyalty to two different countries. And yeah, I, th- I think that's a possibility that this executive order plays into that, that feeds into that, that, you know, it's looking like it's supposed to protect Jews, but it's really, again, another way for Donald Trump to politically help himself. But, it's very, very, yeah, it's uh, very dangerous. scary stuff. Very scary stuff. Okay. All right, so we talked about Jonathan Turley a lot last week. We talked about him today, in fact. Uh, and he, you know, his rationale for why we shouldn't go with impeachment right now. And you happen to hear from a friend of yours who was a law student of his, right? Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, he was not really a friend, but a, a fan of the show, actually, who who reached out to me uh, and, and sent me an email. And he says, um, this is what he wrote. Regarding Jonathan Turley, he was my constitutional law professor in law school. And on the many days he was making appearance in the media or testifying on the Hill, the substitute was sometimes his protege, Michael Avenatti. <laughs> okay. It gets better. All anyway, right. Turley knows his stuff, no doubt, but he's also a bit of a showman, and he loves to play the contrarian in order to garner more media attention. That was the consensus opinion about him amongst my classmates as well. As for his testimony, it was disappointing because I once gen- genuinely admired the guy. Even back then, it was hard to pin down what he truly believed or which side he truly sides with, which is exactly how he likes it. And his being hailed as a hero of the right notwithstanding, it seems not much has changed. That said, my gut tells me he's more in line with the thinking of the other three professors who testified on impeachment. But the opportunity to take center stage as the lone dissenting star witness for the Republican for the Republicans was too good to pass up. And he says this, I'll never forget this. At some point during that first year, Turley told us that it doesn't matter if you truly believe something to be true, so long as you say it with conviction. He was talking about arguing a point in court before a judge or jury, but I think it applies more broadly to his testimony last week as well. What do you think of that, Patrick? Wow, that captures what was in the back of my head the whole time I was watching Turley because we agreed that he was a very, very strong witness mm-hmm. uh, and that he made us both think. And that's yes. good. I mean, and, and, and that's actually, you know, the, who, who are these folks that got there? They're all academics and that's their job. You put them in front of a classroom, they're, they're to make students think, think about things differently, sometimes to play the devil's advocate. Uh, and he did that well, but the, but the, the thing, the Avenatti thing, Oh, yeah, man. I mean, the Avenatti thing, that that was his protege. So that's who he learned from. And it sort of puts a different spin on it. And and this whole idea of as long as you say it with conviction, you can say it's yeah. very Trumpian, really. Yeah. But, like, but remember, can... one of the things I was, I was saying like that, that, that stuck with me, though, that there was always that doubt in the back of my mind. Well, what does he really believe? Because, you know, with Clinton, he was very much came out and said, Clinton committed a crime, therefore he has to be impeached. There's no question about it. And this one, he said, well, we don't have an evidence of a crime. And really, you can't do like, so, like he was, he would pick narrow lanes to look at this as a way to push through a very cogent argument. Yeah, and going back, he what he said, and it was the key moment for me, you can do this, you just can't do it this way. Okay, let's move on to the Democratic debate field, which is now set. Yang is in, we have a quote here, more billionaires than black people. Who said that? That was Cory Booker. He said, we now have a debate process that has more billionaires than black people on the stage. Uh yeah, so this, the field is set. There's seven candidates who will make it. Cory Booker is not one of them. He did not yep. get 
4% in any qualifying poll that came out. Yang just made it in. Uh, Klobuchar is in there as well. That's as, good. And, and, and Tom Steyer, the billionaire, um, is on the stage, uh, as well as the top contenders, Biden, Warren, Sanders, and Buttigieg. Uh, so, uh, I, you know, it's going to be interesting. We'll watch it next week and, and see what happens. But, you know, this is the winnowing down. But the, it's the winnowing down that, you know, I think Cory Booker is right. Is that is it really representing the grassroots or is it representing something else? I don't know. Well, I'll tell you, every time you turn on the television, you can see an ad for Michael Bloomberg or for Tom Steyer. That's for sure. And yeah, this is, is this is weird. I mean, Tom, Tom Steyer, I don't see the ads as much because he, Tom Steyer is, is limiting his advertising to the early states. Michael Bloomberg is avoiding the early states and advertising nationwide, which is why he got 5% in Mama's poll, 5% in Quinnipiac's poll this week. Uh, I think it would get 2 or 3% anyway just because of his name recognition, but, you know, he's getting 5%. But, I saw, you know, I'm watching New York media. He's, he's advertising in New York. Constantly. Well, because what, he, what, what his goal is, is his goal is to get it to the convention, have a brokered convention, and then find his way. He's also giving $10 million to, you know, Democrats all over the country who are fighting for their for their seats. So he's he's playing the long game, I think. Yeah. Well, we'll see more of that as uh, as we go along. All right. So uh, that's it for our hot take segment. Let's move on to our Guardian of the Week. And so what are your this thoughts? This is an on interesting this? one. So you know our rules have changed. Yes. After yes. last week, uh, we've changed the rules. I couldn't come up with a really good Guardian of the Week. Um, and then I thought to myself, you know what? With the understanding, just to remind, if you missed last week's episode, the rules have changed in this way. The Guardian of the Week now needs to be agreed to by both hosts. We both need to agree on the Guardian of the Week because we ran into some issues with Gordon Sondland. So this week, I'm proposing for Guardian of the Week, Nancy Pelosi. What is your feeling about it? Well, you know, our rule is that you have to put your own personal or political future at risk in service of the Republic. And I actually think her moves this week strengthen her political uh, future. I disagree. Uh, I think, I think she's, she played this smartly, but I, Very I, smart. I think, she, but, but it was done strategically thinking about 2020 and not necessarily thinking about the future of the Republic. So I, I don't think she deserves guardian of the week, although she does deserve special mention for, I think how she's playing, playing this out because it's not a great hand that she's been dealt no it's not and she's playing it very well the argument i would make is that even going through with impeachment at this point does put her speakership at risk and if she loses the speakership that's the end of nancy pelosi if the democrats lose the house nancy pelosi is done she's not going to be the minority leader she will be done um and by even moving forward with it and putting those seats in virginia and california that were won by a thousand votes two thousand votes does put her at some risk, though I do concur that really, you know, <laughs> I think it's one of those situations where we get a chance to talk about Pelosi and what a strong job she's done. Yeah, really. I mean, look, Nancy Pelosi has been, in my mind, just evaluating your ability to get your caucus together, to move things, to keep people in line. She has been the strongest congressional leader of any party in either the House or the Senate, and that includes Mitch McConnell. Of the past twenty years, well, just yeah. just if you were just to, can we go back further? I yeah, mean, yeah, we, we yeah, we could possibly go back further. I mean, she know. got Obamacare passed, yes. which was not easy for her to do. Right. Um. She she's she's good. Yeah, she's she, good speaker. She of the is house. very good. And what she did this this is why I was saying she wasn't guarding the week because I wasn't just looking at what happened with the impeachment hearings this week. I was looking at what else the House was doing. Yeah. 
And so what did they do? Is that they came to an agreement on... On USMCA? The, the trade deal with Mexico and uh, Canada. Mm-hmm. They passed a bill to cap drug prices, the, one of the big, big issues that Americans say bother them. Um, so their members, those those members in those swing districts that, that, that flipped in 2018, can go back to, say, to, to their districts and say, yep, because they're done, they're going to be done with impeachment by, by next week. So the House is done with impeachment. And while we were doing that, we got it done. And by the way, we did all these other things that you said were at the top of your list. So right. we showed Walk you, and chew gum at the we, same we, time. We showed you moderate voters that we could do this without getting bogged down. So that's why I think you know she was really, really smart this week. Not a guardian of the week. Well, wait, but wait, really, wait. but really smart. Before in terms we of, before uh, we finally as, as rule on this, before we finally rule on this, I want to go back to something that happened earlier in the week, where she was finishing up her press conference, and a right leaning uh, journalist uh, asked her if you're just doing this because you hate President Obama, President Trump. And she starts talking to him. I, to me, it's one of her top five moments as speaker. Could be top three moments as speaker. She goes back to the lectern and she says, "Look, President Trump is a coward in dealing with gun control. He's a coward. He's he's horrible at this. He's horrible at that. That's the election. We we're going to deal with that in the election. But what he's doing, and don't use the word hate with me. I'm Catholic, and that doesn't play with me. So don't you dare start that with me. I was like, wow, that's like grandma getting mad when I was yep. a kid. And she's like, and what she says to him is, but what he's doing is fundamentally taking, going at the Constitution, and that we cannot let happen. So don't bring that hate business my way, and we're done. And I was just like, dang, gone. That's some good stuff right there. You know, she really, she really played. So let's do the fi- and the final analysis. We do not agree, so she right. is not the Guardian of the Week, but she was a nominee for the Guardian of the Week. Yes, and she d- did a stellar job in her job and, yes. and trying to balance all these things and strategically, I, just top of her game, I think. I, I still vote yes. <laughs> and I'll vote no. All right, <laughs> all right. that's it for this week's edition of Guardians of the Republic. If you have any suggestions for our George Washington quote or a Guardian of the Week, because I think we're, we're going to really need one soon, <laughs> right? Pretty soon. Yes. <laughs> so reach out to us on Twitter. You can direct message us there at Guardians OTR. And please make sure to subscribe to get the latest episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. Please give us a rating and tell your friends if you like the show. If you think it's a, a, a good listen, please tell your friends about us. And check out our website, guardians-republic.com. Thank you for joining us, and we will be back with a new episode next week. See ya. See ya.